you, you captured that truly arresting exchange about the difficulties of Skype communication, as if anyone on a podcast had never heard that before. <laughs> right. Well, how, how are you doing? I appreciate you, you coming back on, on, on the show. I want to apologize for uh, David's absence, so I can guarantee that there will be probably a few bad uh, ventriloquist-style impersonations of David uh, from for the next maybe 30 minutes to an hour, so <laughs> bear, bear with me on that. Okay. Yeah, I'm I'm fine. It's two days later after we did my show, morning here in Tokyo again. Wonderful. Uh, it actually uh, the weather has not improved, so whatever we were talking about before is apparently full on, just like a uh, biblical level flood. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so, and it's beautiful here. So <laughs> I am I am doubly envious. And I actually had a question. I mean, uh, I want to introduce by um, uh, our, our guest here, and for the the crossover podcast, we have uh, Tim Young of the Deconstructing Comics podcast. Uh, I mean, forgive me if I'm mispronouncing this. In the machi- is it Machi guy or how? how, how what is the uh, and the, the uh, and the Ma- yeah. Ma- to the back- oh yeah yeah so yeah, Machi guy podcast which is English study for Japanese yeah and then to the bat polls uh, about the sixty six Batman TV show. And I would really not be doing uh, doing it justice if I didn't bring up the fact that you had a lot to celebrate <laughs> your partner in crime on that podcast. Right. Uh, just got an Eisner nomination today, so woo! Yeah, yeah, just found out about it a couple hours ago that uh, yeah, my, my brother's book, uh, so his name is Paul Young, and the book is Frank Miller's Daredevil and the Ends of Heroism, which came out last year, and yeah, it was just announced as one of the nominees for an Eisner in the the uh, kind of uh, book study, I forgot the name of the category exactly, but uh, kind of academic book studies of yeah. comics. Yeah, academic or comic book related, I think is is the is the title. But don't quote me on that. <laughs> but that's fantastic. Yeah. So I, I wanted to start with congratulating you on that, and again, thanking you for for giving us your your time uh, for all the way from uh, past the international dateline <laughs> yeah. for us. So from the, you're actually calling us from the future. Right. Yeah. Which it's is the next day here. Uh, well. Uh, I want to get started by just getting some some biographical info. So you had the chance to to ask a few questions about us and uh, the formulation of our podcast, and I, I think it's only fair to do the same for you. Where did uh, deconstructing comics come from? Where where did you get the the idea to to sit around with some some friends and really kind of uh, of go in deep into comics material? Hmm. Okay. Well, it started because so in the early two thousands, I revived the comic that I had done uh, when I was a teenager um, and tried putting it out as a web comic, which I don't think anyone read. Um, but uh, I was working on that for several years. And at the time I was working on a U.S. Uh, air base here in Japan. Um, I was not in the military. I was working for an educational contractor. Uh, and I... I had taken a different, I had taken a photography class at the arts and crafts center on the base. And so I suggested to them how, Hey, how about getting a, doing a a comics drawing class? Cause I felt like I needed to improve badly. Um, and I think that was why like maybe a year later, uh, they did start a comics drawing class and they had recruited someone from off base, someone who had no connection to the base, uh, to, uh, teach the class uh and his name is mulele and 
uh, about a year after that, uh, so at that time I was in the class and one other guy named Brandon, and he said to us, I can't teach you anything else. You've graduated. So then it just became uh, not the class that we were paying for, but meeting for coffee every week and just talking about comics. And then a few months later, he said, hey, why don't we start a podcast? Because this was 2005, and podcasts were just kind of becoming known as something you could do. I guess I didn't know about it at the time, but earlier that year, I guess Wired Magazine had done an article about podcasting, and uh, so then it kind of started to uh, explode there a little bit, although then it kind of disappeared again for 10 years. Um so, uh, yeah, in December 2005, uh, the first Deconstructing Comics came out, and it was just the three of us talking about comics and about making comics. Um, and so it's just kind of gone from there now, uh, 11 and a half years. Um, it's really a great milestone. We want to congratulate you on being consistent in broadcasting that long. It's something that we really, uh, I think me, David, and, and really everybody else on the team, is uh is not it means looking forward to <laughs> it's a goal we hope we can make it make it that far but it's it, uh it's something what what do you think uh in that in that span of time has been the most rewarding aspect of, of, of podcasting for you mm. well i mean it's it's a nice medium to work in because you can get some fairly big names on where like if i was doing a, a podcast on hollywood movies you know forget it um <laughs> But, you know, because we've had some pretty well-known people on. Uh, Jeff Smith was on just recently of Bone. Um, Peter David was on in the past. Um, oh, gee, Dan Jurgens. I actually got to interview him in person a few years ago. Um, and, you know, other people. Uh, so, you know, it's it's nice that they're so accessible and, and we can uh, get them on our our. Uh, little podcast shows that a few people listen to i think for, for me the thing i really enjoyed about your your podcast is that you feature so many independent creators and uh and really go in depth in in their work and also a lot of international uh creators that i might not actually have had the chance to get exposure to either in the states yet or are really just kind of coming into their own and it's really become a show for me to tune in and to kind of get comic recommendations. Mm -hmm. <laughs> do, you, do you find that the case for for a lot of your listeners? Yeah, I've heard that before. Yeah, that the, uh, they you know I'll, I'll sit, they'll hear from somebody who said, "Oh, I wouldn't have known about this comic if I hadn't heard about it on your podcast." And I love this comic. So, yeah, it happens. Every, I hear that every so often. I, I really appreciated getting the chance to actually had a. a heard or was introduced to some of the work on on your show and then was immediately like i need to talk to that person <laughs> it's really cool especially in terms of, of being a, a fan here in the west of uh, kind of like japanese manga or or that that style like the some of the guests that you had there who um who are who are westerners who actually are, are working and creating independent like western comics in japan i thought was really interesting or or the opposite who who find their way into that industry there was a really interesting insight because it's it's kind of like reverse engineering the dream that <laughs> a lot of people have in the state yeah well it's it's been interesting here the past few years that uh we've started to have some kind of you know mocha type uh comics conventions here um 
And it's become a bit of a community where, you know, you go to one of these and, you, you know, now you see a lot of people that you've seen there every year and, and uh, we, you know, we kind of know each other and there are always some new faces and that's great. Um, but, you know, there's actually one creator, uh, Natalie Andrewson, who lives in New York and she comes here every year uh, to be at the um, Kaigai Manga Festa, the, the overseas comic festival. Um, well, it's, important to note though that i guess uh she has a airline connection that it's not so expensive for her to to get here but still i mean you know she takes that that long trip to come here every year yeah it's fascinating i think a lot of creators like just happen to be in that same kind of nerdy vein and they're just like trip to japan you say oh <laughs> yeah how i mean you've been to you've been to conventions though in in japan and in in the west like how I think for for people who are not familiar, like some some pretty big differences, and like in one, like cosplay is not is something you actually have to to pay for at a lot of these these conventions, is my understanding. So you can't you can't actually uh, often attendance is free, but if you want to attend as a cosplayer, you actually have to pay, and you go to a separate part of the convention. Yeah, I'm not sure about the pay part, but yeah, like um, at uh, at a different event that's you know that's all Japanese. Um, let's see, that's uh, Comic Get. Or comic gay. I'm, I hear different pronunciations, um, but uh, yeah, like if you're a cosplayer, well, you can walk around. But the thing is, um, the photography of cosplayers is confined to one area because they don't want people, you know, jamming up the aisles, you know, posing for for photos, taking photos. So they they, they confine that to the roof area. Um, which is kind of interesting in the the winter with the, these girls in skimpy costumes <laughs> hanging around out, outdoors on the roof. Yeah, they had a recent uh, anime that uh, made, or what is it? The uh, oh gosh, the the maid. Oh gosh, the dragon maid. I can't remember the the full title, but like they have they have a winter comicette episode in that, and uh, she gets away with with transforming into herself in the winter, and of course is quite warm as, as opposed <laughs> to everybody else, or not wanting to do that. Yeah, the uh, gosh, I I, I kind of stepped on the the lead there though because I guess the what I was really interested in and in finding out is is just what your take is on the difference between like the fan culture or the the fan conventions in. Uh, in Japan, as opposed to, to any experiences that you might have had in in the West, or did I, I guess also did you did you attend conventions before you went to Japan? Was that something you were still uh, interested in, or taking part in here in the states before you you went mm. to Japan? Well, I mean, I've been here for twenty eight years, uh, and so I left in nineteen eighty nine, and uh, I was barely aware of comics conventions at that time. You know, there certainly weren't nearly as many in the States as there are now. Um, you know, I think San Diego was around, but <laughs> um, other than that, well, I think, I don't know where I went. Maybe my brother went, but in, in, well, I'm from Cedar Rapids, Iowa, and I think one time in the 80s, they tried to have a little con, you know, that was, I don't, I don't know if there were any major guests at it, but, um, you know, it's become a much bigger thing these days where, you know, every Every city in town has a Comic Con these days. Um, so the short answer is no. Um, I had not really been to any kind of comics event that I can recall until uh, just within the past ten years here in Japan. 
Have you had a chance to, to travel home stateside? See, I know you've gotten a lot of correspondence to go to things like TCAF or SBX and uh, get a chance to, or VanCAF, I think was one, or kind of broadcast from, from there. Have you had a chance to, to have uh, that experience yet? Or? Uh, yeah, so in 2011, I was at Emerald City, and uh, that I got two podcast episodes out of that, just you know, you know walking around, uh, talking to different people at their tables. Um, that, that was actually the first comic convention that I think I ever went to, and certainly the first one that I reported on for the podcast. Uh, and then a year ago, I was at MoCA in New York. Um, but then um, other than that, it's been you know here in Tokyo at uh, Kaigai Manga Festa. And then uh, last year, the new one that started, CAT, uh, Comic Art Tokyo, um, which, by the way, I should mention, if, if anyone's interested in coming to Tokyo for, you know, showing their stuff at a con or at two cons, um, I understand, and this, I'm not sure this is confirmed yet, but whatever. Um, the, I guess the plan this year is that Cat and Kaigai Manga Fester are going to be held within a couple of days of, of each other. They're both, you know, just one-day events. Uh, but... Uh, People who want to come here from overseas to do a con can actually get do a two for one, <laughs> um, and I think that they're both in November, I believe. They're in a month that ends in R. Yeah, <laughs> I'm pretty sure that it's November this year. Um, that's that's the plan anyway. Um, so I'm going to be very. December's deconstructing comics episodes are going to be nothing but convention coverage. <laughs> I think it's interesting because I think some of the people who put that together, like, um, ended up having been previous guests on your show well before they started doing that. They were, they have like independent presses in in Japan, or yeah, there are. Yeah, the the cat guys are both running their their own little publishers. Um, let's see if I can remember. So Big Ugly Robot Press, which is based down in Nagoya. Uh, Adam runs that, and then Black Hook Press, run by James here in the Tokyo area. Um, and yeah, so they got together and started CAT uh, last year. I'm going to take us back into the, the Wayback Machine here, because one of the things I, I didn't do in terms of just setting up your biography is just interested in you as, as, a, as a person. And so what... Um, what brought you across the international dateline? You mentioned working for an educational company, um, but that's um, that's right around the start of the podcast. So, like, what what brought you there twenty years ago? What what got you uh, to uh, to pick up stakes, as it were, and and uh, and settle in in Japan? Hmm. Well, I got interested in Japan when I was in high school because I had a pen pal here, um, and then when I was in college, well. One thing was that I had the opportunity to learn a Japanese musical instrument, uh, the koto. Uh, and then the other thing was that my my senior year of college, uh, I was on my my college's uh, quarter abroad program. It's like, you know, a group of students and professors travel. Um, and I think they still do it. I've kind of lost track of what's going on there. But... Um, it was be, they they do this every fall, but it would it would rotate among Europe, South America, and Asia. Uh, so I was on the Asia uh, study tour, 
um, and, which spent about a month here in Japan and then went to Taiwan and Hong Kong and mainland China. Um, and so that was kind of my first taste of actually being here. Uh, and then I met uh, the woman who would become my wife for 16 years before we got divorced. Um, <laughs> um, and so, but, but, you know, so I knew her here and I was interested in coming here and, and teaching English. I mean, for some people teaching English, is just kind of a way to get here, but I was actually interested in teaching English. Um, so that was, that was how I kind of got started here 28 years ago. That's fascinating. I think that's like a, of a generation. Like, was there any what what got you interested in in the culture? I know like a lot of people um, in the eighties kind of cite like the what is it the movie and book Shogun as as a thing that that got people interested. But it sounds like that's completely <laughs> not the case here. Yeah, not really. I mean, I guess I had read the book, but but I was already interested before that. I don't know. It's kind of hard for me to put my finger on. I was I was interested in kind of the traditional performing arts especially um i got interested in like kabuki drama and and playing the koto um where did you find a koto in cedar rapids idaho like where where did you uh, find a 17 string instrument <laughs> well iowa actually um and well actually yeah the there's a larger koto that's 17 strings i learned the normal size 13 string one um but so i i went to augustana college which is in rock island illinois and by coincidence, that same year, a professor, a music professor transferred in there from a different school. Um, and he's, you know, American, no Japanese heritage. Uh, but he had learned the Koto himself from some Japanese teachers and he taught Koto. And so we had a little Koto group uh, at the college. There were... Eh, when I was there, I think the most we ever had was like six or eight people in the group. Um, but yeah, just because he was there, I had I had the opportunity to study it. That's really cool. I mean, again, that's a, I, I've had the chance to see just like one ensemble performance from like a prefectural group that came in a an exchange thing here in India and just kind of was floored because there's a lot of things on YouTube you can see where they uh, they do things like play tool or heavy metal music on. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think even more popular is the like the the Korean equivalent of the of the instrument. They've got a lot of like there's a YouTuber who's got like four or five million subscribers for for her stuff where she re uh, reorchestrates uh, different different contemporary pieces into that and even when they came they were playing a bunch of like original jazz pieces for Kodo and I just thought that cross cultural thing of of the of using that instrument in new ways mm -hmm. was was really fun so I'm glad to yeah. hear that's something I did not know that about you so that so, didn't come up in yeah. I don't think I ever heard that on the podcast so I'm I'm currently I'm uh teaching high school of all things um and at the the high school where i teach now they have a koto group that i've been playing with sometimes uh and when i have time uh but this this past uh winter uh we were playing a koto version of let it go <laughs> which was pretty difficult <laughs> um because and I'm not used to playing koto that has a lot of notes kind of on the upbeat. It's usually pretty straight, you know, the uh, traditional stuff. But you know, you play kind of more modern or western stuff, and and 
there there's a lot more syncopation and stuff and, and it was really kind of awkward for me to to play that on the koto i'm not used to that I guess, what would be the thing you would compare it to most of the West? I guess like maybe like a steel guitar or like a, maybe a mountain dulcimer or something like that. Hmm. Yeah, I'm not sure what a mountain dulcimer looks like, but you know, it's it's kind of like a harp, except the shape is completely different. Um, more kind of a log shape. <laughs> um, and yeah, you can either kneel down to play it or some some groups will sit in chairs and put the kotos on these stands i that's what the the group that i saw did that and then the thing was like they were playing like really they were playing really fast like heavy metal like a nine inch nails cover and then this one girl got and it was an all-female group and this one girl just got like really into it she's she's shredding her koto and then she accidentally knocks off one of the bridges and it goes flying into the audience like <laughs> so, so like they, that thing had to stay had to stay uh stationary or it was going to do some moving Mm, yeah, yeah, those those things can slide a little bit, especially the one on the, the string furthest out. Yeah, that was that's fascinating. Thank you for 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 letting us go down that that end because that's a, <laughs> sure. I, I, I'm not I not had that opportunity to nerd out about that particular instrument before. <laughs> we don't do a lot of music discussion on the podcast. Hopefully, there'll be something to change. Uh, I think we told you like it's essentially the the fun thing about this for us as a medium is that we're able to just say like that's something that seems like it would be fun to talk about or we'd like to to know more. And I, I'm just curious to see if there is anything that you think that you've you've learned or or picked up yourself uh, um, in in doing your show or something that you didn't didn't uh, some kind of a new appreciation perhaps of, of a comic or of a particular artist. Oh, well, it's it's hard to think right now, especially since, you know, as soon as an episode is done, then I have to start thinking about the next one. So it's, there's not much time to savor it sometimes. But um, um, I don't know, I guess, um, you know, I, we kind of tend to talk about, you know, comics as a medium and how they work. And, you know, that's... Uh, been interesting to me to, to think of it in that way and you know different ways of that you can tell a story in comics you know different kind of rhythms to you know how much happens in one panel how much how much time passes in that panel and you know in japan it's ten it is often much less kind of compressed than it is in american comics you know each panel can be a really short amount of time um especially since they're you know in like the shonen manga where there are a lot of fight scenes um, <laughs> um so where you know in a lot of times well even that there are fight scenes in western comics especially kind of the older ones uh there'll be like a whole conversation going on in one panel while they're punching each other <laughs> how much time went out you know went by while they were punching each other as opposed to uh as opposed to being in like the most famous manga of all like dragon ball They're, like you gotta have like Five minutes on Namek is a heck of a lot of chapters in that month. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. that, that's like just like that's like biblical time, like like and seven days and also sixty five million years later. <laughs> or perhaps three fish songs. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I didn't understand that joke until I went to a music festival and Fish was the, the headliner and I, I left the music festival after they were about three hours into their set and it was the last day of the music festival. It just, it literally, like, the last day of the music festival was just 
fish. <laughs> <laughs> they started like three. They go on, and then they have a thing at the end to close out the festival. They have this jam session or whatever, and it's just like fish continues to play, and then more people come onto the stage. And you're like, we were we were done two hours ago. <laughs> we got to back up. <laughs> the uh, yeah the, the I guess the, the the one of the things that was was fun for us is getting to to do the you you dissect uh, the comic and then you do kind of like the interview based shows uh, but you also have the the thing where you decide like a piece of material to review and you you kind of tuck into it did you did you always have that structure for the podcast or when did you you guys decide to uh, to do critiquing comics as a separate thing hmm. okay well so. Yeah, initially it was, you know, let's find something we can talk about and kind of take it apart in how how it's telling its story and you know what's good about it, what's bad about it, and you know in the early days sometimes we do that with a Marvel comic, um, or you know I think one time Mulele brought a comic from France. You know, it was all this different stuff, um, and then it sort of settled down a little bit more into you know reading a graphic novel or something and reviewing it and it was mainly that for the first year or two um or or else it would be just talking about some kind of an issue related to comics rather than any particular comic but it was just discussion and the interviews didn't really start until maybe near the end of the second year of the show and I think initially we were just kind of, well, I think there was one interview early on, but it was one of my office mates who did some art. Um, yeah, nobody famous. Um, and then I think, yeah, near the end of the second year, let's see, Alex Robinson was on. Uh, and uh, Phil Dunlap, who does the, or did the comic strip, um that the name of which I'm forgetting right now, um, um, Ink Pen. Um, I don't know. Are you familiar with that strip? Ink, ink. I, I'd have to. I'd have to look up my funny pages. <laughs> I okay. don't know. Yeah, I think he's. I don't think he's doing it anymore. Um, but uh, Ink Pen is, you know, a, a daily strip about uh, some comics characters who kind of work through an agency to get work. Um, and there are, you know, some superhero characters and some funny animal characters and, uh, and so, you know, it's, you know, it's a gag a day type of thing. Um, I think he was actually the first, a little bit famous person that I had on. And then Alex Robinson, because we had reviewed, uh, Tricked and loved it so much. Um, I don't know if you ever read Tricked. No, I don't think I have read that one. Okay, um, well, so before that, he had done Box Office Poison, which I had not read. Uh, my introduction to Alex Robinson was tricked, and then I went back and read uh, Box Office Poison. Um, and I think whichever one of the two you read first is going to be the one that you love. <laughs> um, because, like, on iFanboy, they, they had read Box Office Poison first, and they loved that. And then they went read Tricked, and yeah, Tricked was pretty good where I read Tricked first, and I was like, this is amazing. Somebody's using comics in a completely different way from from my, what I've ever seen before. And then I read Box Office Poison, like, yeah, yeah, this is okay. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I interviewed him, I think it was 2007. Um, and so since then, there have been some interviews, and actually I think 
recently it's been a little bit heavier on the interviews than the review shows. Um, partly because now I've got um, more people who have volunteered to uh, interview other people for the podcast, or sometimes they do discussions of comics. Um, but then you asked about critiquing comics, and that's a little bit different because we had, Mulele and I had this idea uh, maybe two or three years in to ask people to send us their comic and we would critique it. And at first we were just doing that in Deconstructing Comics. Uh, and then at some point, I don't remember exactly when, we decided we would do that as a separate series within the same podcast feed. Um, I guess we started to do that when people actually started to send us their comics, where before we would just kind of find a webcomic and critique it. Um, but now, you know, we get enough submissions that we uh, can do a, do it as a separate series. We don't, I don't know if we do. We do. Uh, it's rather we have like a, a critique of something, and then we get somebody back on. <laughs> I'm not saying the rip their stuff, but we. I think a lot of the times early on, especially with with the film stuff, because it's easy for us to relate. Is like we didn't want to necessarily like really rip into like what would somebody might think of as a bad film because if you even do a, a student film you're just like oh crap this is hard <laughs> <laughs> it just gives you an immediate i think you perhaps have have a similar similar quality for for having having drawn your own webcomic or, or worked with with that it's easy to to maybe relate to the creators but I mean, do you think that gives you a better depth in the review though so I, it, it isn't as if um i think the most recent one that i heard that was pretty vicious was the alex and ada one <laughs> uh Oh yeah, oh yeah, that was yeah with Kumar, right? Yeah. Um, well, and you know he kind of surprised me there because he was aware of this TV series from the UK, I think, that was you know very similar to Alex and Ada and came out before Alex and Ada. Like, oh, okay. Um, now, I don't know if it was consciously plagiarized or just you know two people coming up with the same idea separately, which does happen, but. Uh, yeah, I guess, you know, Kumar said that TV series was done, in his opinion, much better than Alex and Ada was. I don't know if it's the same one, but we've got the, I think he called it like Something Humans. There's a, there's a human show on AMC in America. I think that's how it's translated here. I think we've done an adaptation of it. Hmm. And so that was coming out maybe a bit afterwards. So it does, I don't know, maybe just something in the Zeke guys there. It's possible. <laughs> we had the, uh, I remember I did uh Reviews reviews are fun though. I think sometimes a bad review is 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 worth more to you than than a good one. I had a uh, a community theater thing that I had uh, that I participated. In. I'd never done anything before. It was like twelve, and the newspaper had a, um, a front page review, and it said it had the ability. It was like a cheese biscuit with the ability to go stale in under one minute. <laughs> and <laughs> it's just like, wow. Okay. Yeah. I kept that one. Cause that ended up helping to, to pack the seats. Like it's like, Oh, well if it's that bad, it must be good. <laughs> hmm. Yeah. I mean, we, we don't review stuff badly very often. Maybe just because if we don't like it, we're kind of like, yeah, let's not talk about this. Um, but it's, like, you know, it's the boundary principle. But I, I think it's it's reviews are important though. Like I'm not saying that you shouldn't shouldn't really like savage something like Ooh, we did not like that. <laughs> but then, we just had an hour long rant about I think the some of the Nick Spencer stuff. So that was that was mostly me. I just I think I found it really enjoyable both like when you're really tucking <laughs> in or when he was just like 
Well, I mean, I don't want to talk about the art, but, you know, it'll distract me from talking about the story for a minute. And that's, <laughs> that's a blessing. Um, but then when people send us their comics to critique, then, you know, we have to be diplomatic about, you know, how bad it is. Um, and some of them are good. And, and sometimes maybe the art is good and the story is meh or the other way around. Um, you know, we've gotten some pretty bad ones, uh, in both story and art. And other times we've gotten, uh, you know, very good ones, but you know, wh whichever way it is, we, we want to be encouraging to them, you know, fix this, fix that. And it's going to be better and, you know, point out whatever is good about it too. Cause it's, there usually are some things that are good about it. Um, so, but yeah, in those cases, we try not to be, you know, savage t towards the work. <laughs> I, I really, I, I really like it. I, I'm sorry I took it down that court tangent. I just like, I did enjoy that, that episode that I, that I mentioned. And I, it's funny. Cause I actually did. I actually did kind of like the book too, but even so it's like, I, I still find this really entertaining and funny. <laughs> so like the, there's, there, I think there's an art to it. And it seems that you guys do, do a really good job in, 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 in being pretty fair to work, especially being fair to up and coming creators and, uh, and, and giving them hopefully really encouraging advice. And like I said getting uh, some interesting material in terms uh, of recommendation for your for your listeners too so you're doing kind of a good service all around and and gushing a little bit i like the, the <laughs> fellow podcast keep it coming keep it coming <laughs> I like what podcasting has done well so yeah 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 uh but the the thing is uh we'd, we'd actually critiqued a, a comic or we did a little bit of deconstruction a little bit of critique on on your show and i think uh let me know if, if you didn't have time to pick up on uh, some of the titles that I suggested maybe wanting to, to talk about for, uh, yeah, for us. I, I did look at both of them. I'm hoping you won't rip them apart. I'm kidding. <laughs> 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 Since I have no connection to them. We had a, had a few things that, that we, uh, we'd been reading. I think um, my relationship to, to comics is mostly kind of on the, on the manga side of things or what I could pick up from um, the, the turnstile at the, at the Kroger <laughs> when I was a kid. <laughs> Hashtag no sponsorship. Uh, but, <laughs> At least, at least until recently, for the podcast, it really helped me get back into things. Especially because, as you say, people do like to to submit their work or try it to, or to get your opinion, or you just get the chance to see some interesting stuff at, at shows and, and pick them up there. Um, but yeah, I'd really I'd, I'd suggest one of the manga that I really enjoyed recently, which was uh, Natsume's Book of Friends, mm -hmm. and uh, that's uh, and it's been adapted. It's in the news because it's been adapted into uh, an anime show and that's streaming on. Crunchyroll here in the states uh, mm -hmm. for its sixth season, so hopefully it will be something that that fans will be interested in. By the time we get this up, it'll be kind of wrapping up its sixth season. So, what did what did you think of that? Did you uh, how far did you did you get a chance to, to read into it? Um, yeah, I read maybe two or three chapters of it. Um, so, yeah, it was okay. I mean, I I had seen the anime before here in Japan in Japanese, and didn't quite get it. My Japanese is passable for a conversation but um some sometimes uh like stuff on tv is a little difficult to follow um but uh hmm i know it's it's of the the genre of girls comics um and so it's it's kind of a it's kind of a calm and reflective thing um which I don't know. I mean, it was okay. <laughs> I, w I was not really excited about it, but it wasn't bad. It was just maybe not for me. 
Yeah, I think they, they have a, forgive me if there's, a, I think there's even another title for those type of like reflective, like slice of life things. What is mm. it? I think they call it healing. Like, I, I don't know what the word is in Japanese, but I think they call them like a healing that type of thing. I, I, think you're, I think you're not wrong. I think it is one of those things where it just seems like a, a good palate cleanser. Mm. Maybe perhaps more the anime than the uh, than the manga, because if you're, you're watching or reading something like uh, uh, really dark, like, I don't know, um, Gosh, there are a lot of dark manga, <laughs> but I don't know. Even if it's like a Shonen Jump thing, like like uh, oh gosh, like Tokyo Ghoul or something, or Parasite or a horror title. Like if you're reading some Uzumaki, <laughs> and you're just like, okay, okay, maybe I shouldn't have done that. Okay, what's this? Okay, that's nice. There's a little cat. Okay, the cat. That's yeah. also a monster. I haven't found any manga recently that I really liked. I mean, I guess I. I loved Full Metal Alchemist, um, but since then, I don't know. I guess I I haven't been paying as much attention to manga. But the ones that I've checked out, I was kind of like, eh, well, eh, I don't think so. Uh, um, so I don't know. Maybe I'm just not finding the right ones. But I wonder. I mean, do you do you have the option in where from where you're at? Like, I've been, do you have to seek out like the English language bookstores or? Is that something that you have kind of good access to, or is it? I, I guess this is something you talked about a little bit on the podcast. How easy is it for you to find like new new releases, or to to kind of stay on top of uh, comics uh, in English? Well, as far as English comics now, I'm like ninety five percent electronic, um, because uh, if you can find it here, it's way more expensive um, than it would be if you bought it in the states. So. Um, and also, besides the cost factor, there's also the uh, storage factor in a small apartment in Tokyo. Um, and I've already got like a, a shelf full of graphic novels here that I accumulated over the life of doing the podcast. Um, so, and oh, oh, and by the way, also 14 long boxes in my closet. Um, <laughs> yes, of course. So um, I, a year or two ago, I just said, okay, I'm, I'm, done pretty much done buying paper comics uh unless i can't avoid it um so um and and uh well actually natsume also i read electronically it was on amazon electronically so uh i got it that way yeah, I will say it does. I think it does pick up quite a bit in in the later chapters, just because it's. And you're you're quite right to call it a like uh, in that shoujo vein. The the author is a is a is a shoujo mangaka, and she had a um, a work that a lot of, all of her work had been in like uh, girl like girls comics things uh, before that in terms of magazines that that would publish them. But that, the the one thing I thought that was interesting about that as it goes on is that it's an aromantic title. Like there's there's no any 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 hit of romance is quashed <laughs> very strongly. And and she has like these asides as an as an author. And she the thing that she she wanted to, to say quite firmly is like she got tired of um, of having to do like certain tropes or so. Uh, so the the good thing about it, even though like you say it is perhaps a bit 
a bit more bland as it as it gets going is that it it does it does manage to avoid a lot of those tropes not just genre tropes but like I mean certain storytelling tropes as as well and it's very intentional for her and so like there are many moments that could be played up for fan service or that you might fear if you if you've seen seen in other works and then they don't and sometimes it's it's played humorously the fact that they don't but more often it's just played very calm and it's just a, a matter of fact ghost story and and kind of has seems to like harken back to something you might hear over a campfire and for me that was that was really refreshing just because like you we i just joked about dragon ball and and the time dilation effect apparently <laughs> that existed <laughs> and so it has almost the opposite in terms of just like just being very deliberate storytelling mm-hmm. and so not, not you you would probably be be correct in saying like perhaps not as much happens <laughs> right. necessarily yeah. happens as you would think. You are introduced <laughs> to the main to the main characters at least Natsume and and uh, and the kind of like the mascot character there the, uh, the Nyanko Sensei. Yeah, yeah, I would expect that it must pick up after that. Like I said, I didn't get all that far, maybe three chapters, but uh, it's yeah, like it's tough for you. Introductory. To, you had a lot on your plate <laughs> in terms of like you were saying. You've well, got week to titles to review or or uh, people to prepare for right yeah i'm putting out three shows every week you know deconstructing comics machi guy and then either critiquing comics or to the bat poles um that keeps me quite busy along with teaching at high school three days a week and some private english students i teach mostly on skype um and then a few other little side jobs i'm doing too i'm just kind of glomming stuff together here (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> to make a living. All right, I'm gonna I'm gonna bring out the uh, the David ventriloquist puppet for for a little while. Okay. <laughs> it's a really terrible impression of David. Uh, David, uh, you're you're editing this later, so uh, I hope that you really enjoy my impression of you. Uh, it's not very good. I don't know if that's intentional or if I, I just uh, simply can't actually do a good imitation. Uh, anyway, uh, uh, what I was going to ask, and this is a question that we hear uh, a lot, and uh, we even mentioned this on our NPR interview recently. <laughs> uh, humble brag. Uh, anyway, uh, do you think, uh, where do you fall down on the argument of art versus entertainment in comics? Do you think that there is, uh, how, would you, how would you defend like uh, comics as an art form? Do you think they, they hold up artistic merit? Hmm. So artistic merit versus just, well, so when you say entertainment, are you thinking in terms of like being commercial? So is art versus commerce art argument or you mean something different? I think mostly that. I'm probably underselling this very serious question with this uh, rather ridiculous voice. My apologies again, David. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, it's something that comes to mind every so often, especially talking, well, the talking this week about uh uh marvel's problems and you know on on the one hand you know it would be great if they would just kind of set a status quo and do no events and just let the creators do what they want to um but at the same time if their sales are low they have to and well one one would hope that if they just let the creators do what they wanted to, sales would go up. Um, but they apparently don't think so. Um, so they do events and they make the comics more like the movies or like the Netflix series. Um, and then all the fans complain about that. Um, 
But, you know, they're doing that for commercial reasons, and you can understand because they want to make money and uh, the stockholders want to make money. Um, so, you know, I would like to see it done as art with artistic integrity, but if if they go bankrupt and those books go away, then that's not a sustainable way to do it. It's It's a, you know question that's been around as long as art and commerce have been around so i don't know if there's you know what the if there's a good uh, way to balance the two oh, my apologies just pausing for one moment i've got to adjust something on the recorder there it seems to have gotten uh, just a low power warning oh have you so thank you for for recording concurrently this is one of the benefits of interviewing a fellow podcaster <laughs> right that... yeah and you know, i can separate the tracks but i can send you your side too if something happens that that your like your recorder dies so yeah i want to make sure that that wasn't that that wasn't what's happening it is giving me like a low or, or no battery warning but i'm gonna continue here at least for the next few minutes here and hope that we got that first segment because it was giving me a mark so should have <laughs> anyway sorry for that for that segue uh that that proves the uh art has technical difficulties too <laughs> but i guess the the other end of that is like i said we're, we we had a um a brief thing for for a local npr segment and uh, and that was a question that had come up because it was something we discussed on the show but also because it was literally for a nationally syndicated art um, art segment because the Comic Con, a local one, was was in town and generates about five million dollars in economic activity for the city. So obviously, yay <laughs> for the city. But the but then there's a certain amount of skepticism from from the art community locally. I, I mean, I don't think that that's something that's that's of the culture or in the culture in Japan. And that was one of the things that I found perhaps most compelling or why I liked going to manga because literally you can just pick they treat it more as a medium you can just pick a particular story that you might like to to read about and somebody may have chosen to do that in comic form mm -hmm. <laughs> which is fantastic whereas here it just it seems like perhaps because of the comics code or or certain kind of mitigating factors that things got take that things try to get segmented and think oh isn't that for kids even though of course that's not who the readership of comics is really for for gosh i don't know how many decades really <laughs> Right. Um, yeah, well, I mean, the code is pretty much done for. Everybody has abandoned it. But uh, I think, you know, actually, Paul and I just recorded. It's not, well, it will be out by the time people hear this. But uh, we were talking about, uh, for Deconstructing Comics, uh, a book called The Ten Cent Plague uh, about, um, well, the the main part of it is about EC and Frederick Wortham and Seduction of the Innocent and all that and how the code came about. Um, but you know, we were kind of wishing that there that it would just kind of follow through after that and you know the, over the decades when all the comics had the comics code and how that held comics back in comparison to like in Japan or in Europe uh, where they really developed into a medium that can carry adult stories and American comics are catching up to that but and maybe the public perception is catching up a little but you know I think there's still a tendency to say you know comics equals stuff for kids to read 
Yeah, and not that that now it's it's actually kind of kind of an interesting discussion because we talked about flagging sales um, at Marvel uh, for for a lot of the titles, and part of that is I mean you have to grow a readership. And so that means you need some all-ages titles, and that's something that DC had been doing a little bit better, perhaps. I mentioned on a recent podcast of ours, Super Sons, as a title that I really enjoyed, even if I kept calling Jonathan Kent Connor Kent because apparently I can only hold one Superboy in my hand. But uh, there's the, yeah, it's it's just, it seems like something that that's really important and not always is getting kids to read comics now is, is more difficult mm-hmm. than it used to be because there are certain things that you wouldn't want to show even if it is improving the quality of storytelling. And so it's hard to hit that kind of Pixar mark where it's something that really is all ages, not just a throwaway like, oh, this is for kids or this is for adults. It's, oh, no, you could actually sit down and you could introduce that. We had um, uh, David wanted me to bring up like Batgirl as, as, a, as a really good title, that, that run, um, which is really diverse but really is is aimed and inclusive for for kids and adults and um and uh his his niece that's how he introduced her to comics and his wife to, to comics to a certain extent and they just ran with it i <laughs> loved that and had plenty of titles to recommend after that and so i hope we don't it's it, it's it's an interesting dilemma isn't it to try and to try and appeal to as many parts of a, of a reading community as you can mm-hmm. um but then you know so you you meant we were talking before you know when we were setting this up about uh, afterlife with Archie. That is the opposite. That is taking an all ages title and making it for adults. <laughs> well, <laughs> and, and I'm so liking that quite a bit too. So I read the first trade, and I'm like, why does this exist? I mean, <laughs> I'm I mean, sorry, it's, yeah, it's it, it can't. And, you know, what is this supposed to be? I mean, I feel a little bit, you know, here and there, I can sense the guys who are writing this were cracking up the whole time. Um, particularly, I think it's the end of issue one or maybe issue two. I was I might have missed an issue break there. But um, where it says, you know, one of these kids is infected. Which one is it? And it's got, you know, headshots of all the characters in their traditional art style. <laughs> <laughs> it, has, it has all sorts of callbacks and allusions to like classic Archie and like the back of the book material is fascinating too because of course like Archie comics had all these uh, horror and, and novelty tie-ins like uh, in, in the, the 50s and, and in the 60s and so it's it's great <laughs> to me I really enjoy it because it has that quality but it, in, in a lot of ways if you ask why it exists it's kind of like a, a direct tie-in to the popularity of zombie titles and The Walking Dead as a comic book uh, in the U.S. And so we, when we, uh, me and David went to pick up the first uh, issue of it, it was with like I think uh, maybe issue 100 of The Walking Dead had come out, the bl- a black and white or a color, yeah, uh, a special edition had come out as, as well. And uh, it was really, it was really quite, quite good. We had a fun event at our local comic shop that involved some gelatin brains and uh, staying <laughs> up late <laughs> to, to do that. And I don't know. I think, I think the thing that the other thing that's really compelling is just the 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 art style on that I thought was was really something in terms of like mm. the kind of dreamlike quality to it and yeah. just the evoking evoking the classic style but definitely as you say not not the classic style mm. well and it's interesting because I mean there are those moments that are you know it's played serious but it's funny but then you know there are other points where like you know Archie has to bludgeon his zombie dad and yes. you know, that's you know kind of 
mean ridiculous but also emotionally powerful it's like you know i no, I, I couldn't decide what how to take it you know am i supposed to be scared am i supposed to be crying am i supposed to be laughing i'm not sure what i'm supposed to do <laughs> it's definitely played as as even what even if there are a few a few humorous moments it's definitely played as a, as a straight horror comic mm -hmm. and there there are elements i mean there did you get to the one with the um uh, that's told from the perspective, has a few panels from the perspective of Archie's dog. Ah, yeah, where he's fighting a zombie hot dog. Mm-hmm, yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. So, and then our hot dog is, like, there's the few panels that are from his perspective saying, like, must protect master type yeah. of thing. Uh -huh. And, like, he's trying to, of course, he gets bitten, he, he, then he has to confront him later. And so, like, that whole arc is just, like, as a pet owner, you're just like, oh! Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's, there's no, there's no, I don't think there's any if, ends, or buts on, on that segment of it. Yeah. I think it was definitely playing on the tropes and in a really, really interesting way. I think, I, I don't know, it just, it seems like it's it was them using it as a playground. It was part of, like, an Archie relaunch to a certain extent extent and they took their time much to the fan chagrin because the release schedule had been so sporadic for the um the i don't know if they're all called the chilling adventure books but that was i'm thinking the sabrina book is called that but like the archie horror stuff coming out uh dark tales maybe i'm forgetting i'm forgive me for forgetting the the, the particular line name but they're all i mean they're all related in fact they just did a one shot um uh, that has jughead as a uh, it's called the hunger and it has jughead as a werewolf Mm. <laughs> I see. And then if you, I, I don't know if you had a chance to, to see any of the other titles in the series. So they have that, and like I said, they have the, the Sabrina one. The Sabrina one, to me, was even more jarring, because mm. it is not played for laughs at all. Mm. <laughs> wow. So like by by issue I not some spoilers here, but like one of the main characters has their face eaten by issue five. <laughs> and it's not it's not something that I anticipated happening. And it's like she's actually the product of a satanic cult. <laughs> wow. And that's that's a that's issue one. <laughs> Yikes. So it's like taking that tonal difference, but then also they have this character in it who's a um who's a callback to um I call that she's she's the like a, a the queen she's like a queen of witches and she's like the bride from Gehenna or something and I kept forgetting her name her actual character name but it was or the red red woman or something like that but it's the actual character they show the panels from the original book where she debuted she was the lead in to Archie she was like what had preceded Archie <laughs> in art in, in that comics line and so it was really <laughs> fascinating to see those callbacks intentional callbacks to the history of these properties and to be see them presented in such a cool way and it does it evokes that EC comics vibe that you were talking about mm -hmm. like of those four comics from the 50s and 60s and that's not something that I had ever associated Archie with in my childhood so just like getting the getting to see them play around with that was really fun for me say um I want I was wondering there are a couple of characters Nancy and Ginger um and I wasn't sure who they are are they in the regular Archie comics Oh, hold on. I'm not. Admittedly, I'm not reading the regular run because I, I. This was a good jumping on point for me. I'm gonna have to Google them real quick. Mm, because you know, in in Afterlife with Archie, they are uh, apparently romantically involved, um, except that one of the girls also has a boyfriend, which was weird. But um, <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah, she's a, she's a legacy character, apparently, Nancy. Okay. But then, and then Ginger is her is the 
Yeah, no, no, yeah, she's been in it since 1976. Yeah, she's. She. Oh, do I still have you? Yep. Oh, yeah, she's been, yeah, Nancy has been in it since 1976. And then I think the Ginger, looks like she may have been, she was added to the Archie stories in the early 2000s. So she's, yeah, she's been in the, the contemporary run. And they are, they were dating in the, uh, in the regular Archie books. Oh, they were, okay. Mm-hmm. Of course, me googling that, I see uh, I see some outrage articles saying, and now, uh, oh, whew, this this is dated. I guess that happened in 2013, and so of course there's uh, there's one uh, article here saying like America's typical teenage girl is now gay thanks to Archie Comics. <laughs> Egads. <laughs> yeah, that's inevitable. Yeah, I, should, I mean, that, I, I didn't, the name didn't come up, but yeah, looking at the character, I'm totally, they were, I think they were even on the cartoon versions when I was a kid. So yeah, they, they've been in there, but not, they were added in like the 70s and then the mid-2000s, respectively. Hmm. Okay. Um, yeah, because at first I was thinking Josie and the Pussycats, but no, 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 that's not the right names. Oh, it's one town over. They're, I think, involved in the uh, the werewolf comic. <laughs> okay. So they are. The, the whole continuity is there. You can definitely go from one to the other. And they do have that Sabrina cameo with her aunts um, that starts off the afterlife with Archie. But what did you think? I guess, what did you think of, of that? <laughs> right, yeah. So Sabrina is doing some pretty dark magic there. <laughs> yeah, that She's responsible for the whole thing. And yeah, so then, then they punish Sabrina. Yeah, that, that was that was pretty dark. <laughs> and they don't change the art. I think that's one of the periods where they really don't change the art style. Because like Sabrina and 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 Jughead and her aunts, they really do look kind of typical Archie for the first couple of panels, like the introduction to the storyline, and then they steal Sabrina's mouth and send her to a hell dimension. Yeah, <laughs> yeah like, Sabrina's oh, hair is just the same with that black ribbon through it. Yeah, you can tell who it is. And so it's just like, yeah, I guess this is where the art style is indicating the rest of the story is going to be this way. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I just, I really, really enjoyed something about that. I guess maybe because it was so subversive and like in, I, did you pick those up digitally as well? Right. Yeah. I will say, I think there is a, a more interesting, this is one, a, a definitely a recommendation I would make to acquire them physically if you can, just because like the, like the pastel and like the, the tonal differences across the, the page, like with the, with the coloring really do make an impact uh, when you, when you've got it in your hands. Like, I think it does add a, a more visceral quality to it because it, it has kind of like that burnt photograph feeling where it's just mm -hmm. like. It's trying to evoke an old or, or like a fatigued issue. And there's something inherently jarring about reading that on an electronic device, I think, because it doesn't <laughs> give the same impression of age. Yeah, I, I would rather read on paper. It's just the storage issue. I just I just uh, have to not do that. Pre preaching to the choir. I've got 100 <laughs> audiobooks for a reason. <laughs> <laughs> No, I'm glad to, to hear your, your thoughts on that one. That was one I think David will be, be really happy to hear. I wish he was here to talk about that because that had been a book that he got me into in the first place. Yeah. And well, he'd been involved. It was like, you know, I'm I'm not really a horror guy, but, and I was kind of, like I said, reading it and thinking, why does this exist? But I read the whole first trade. So I guess that says something about it. Yeah. 
I, I will admit, if you, if you, especially if you read those in sequence, Natsume is going to seem a lot more boring after reading Archie. <laughs> yeah, a much calmer be like, oh, take on on similar material. Yeah, it's going to be a much calmer take on on uh, on a uh, a teen solve supernatural mysteries. I don't think Nyanko Sensei is going to get bit by a uh, a, uh, a zombie anytime soon. No. Although if it does, I would like to see that that variant. That would be uh, that would be an inter- that would be more Marvel style. You get some Marvel <laughs> zombies in their universe. Yeah. Oh no, it's it's been a real pleasure. I just got to say thank you so much uh, for your for your time. And uh, I know we're reaching the uh, pretty close to the the hour mark here to to end the the podcast out. Mm-hmm. And I just wanted to see uh, if uh, if there's anything you think we ought to add in terms of like where they can find you online, where they can find mm-hmm. your your own web comics material, where they can pick up your your brother's book, even perhaps. Yeah. Well, I was hoping we were going to talk a little bit about Batman. Um, oh wait, no! What am I doing? I almost forgot because you have a Batman podcast, and I would like to talk about Batman. Yeah, that's what I thought. One <laughs> thing about being uh, having to edit your own material later, or having somebody else edit your own material with a bad ventriloquist impression, is uh, you can decide to continue the interview uh, even when you had forgotten. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's so obvious. I, I I'm more interested in in just just your because it's it's very personal for you in in your other podcast. I'm more interested in like the perspective of like when is the first time you picked up a Batman comic? What about it compelled you and and and, and turned you into a fan? Well, I mean, we were we were never about the Batman comics. We were about the TV show. Um, and I I've hardly you know on on only rare occasions have I read a Batman comic. Um, you know, like kind of the major ones like you know Dark Knight. But uh, you know, when when we were kids. Uh, we discovered the TV show and uh, were really excited about it. You know, that was, that was one of our favorite shows growing up. Um, and, you know, my, our mom had been a little worried that it would be violent, but then she watched it with us. And I guess she had missed it during the sixties because this is in the seventies. But um, then she said, Oh, well, it's a spoof. So, uh, so she wasn't concerned about it. Um, and we, okay spoof what does that mean um so so she kind of explained that to us and you know we being aware of that we could understand some of what was funny about it but you know comedy obviously wasn't the main reason we watched it as kids it was you know we were you know excited oh and we were watching it in black and white too so the color was not not relevant to our enjoyment of it. it but uh you know it was you know, it's a colorful show, even in black and white, just because of the kinds of things that happen on it and the characters and the costumes. Um, and, you know, the the cliffhangers were always exciting to us. Um, so, yeah, I mean, we just really enjoyed it as kids. And uh, then, you know, being away from it pretty much, you know, unbroken for decades until the DVDs came out less than three years ago. Um, so that now we're coming back and looking at it as adults and, you know, every once in a while in, in our podcast, we'll go back and, you know, when I was a kid, I looked at this this way. I, you know, I, it brings back that memory. You know, I, I remember thinking when I was a kid, you know, something like this, and now I'm watching it as an adult and I see it differently. Um, so that's fun. And I, I, we hear about that sometimes that that's something people particularly enjoy about our show, you know, hearing 
the the personal take on it from you know when we were kids and and now i think it's it's been fun uh just seeing the uh i mean it's still there's still a staple of conventions for a reason <laughs> uh-huh. i think that you can still see uh still see most of the 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 uh, the main cast uh, touring around i mean there's there's a reason that it's a fun thing to go there's there's even a company here uh, uh on the outskirts of indy that makes um 66 batman replicas at at 80 grand a pop <laughs> and to got quite a booming business Mm, yeah, well, um, the guy, I think he's in, in maybe, are you talking about the Batmobiles? Yeah, yeah, the 66 Batmobiles. They right. they make a... Right, yeah, I, I talked to that guy. Um, what was his name? Yeah, he he was on our show a while back. Um, I'm blanking oh, I, on I, his I name that right That's fantastic, yeah. But yeah, we'll early, on, show early on uh, in the show, we talked to him, or I, I talked to him. Paul Paul wasn't part of that interview, but... Um, let me like let me look up his name here. Mark Raycop. Yeah, they have him at a lot of local shows, and uh, it's really fun to to get a chance to to hop uh, hop in the seat. They've had some of the original um, original props and and things from the show on exhibition as well. But I, I don't know. I think I think as a kid, that's probably the most for for me at least. I think that's the most compelling thing. Is you're already thinking like, okay, it's gonna be really cool when I'm able to drive. Uh, <laughs> And so, so you're like, when I'm able to drive, obviously my first car will be the Batmobile. <laughs> Even if it doesn't have a top, you know, just drive it when it's sunny. I think I think for for us, like uh, for our generation, like the thing that's cra- uh, crazy about that one is like that's a the atomic powered Batmobile. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. What was the what was the I'm um, forgive me for forgetting like what was the advantage of the doesn't he have like a he has a rocket booster or anything? Please tell me that the nuke did not power the rocket booster. Mm, um well yeah Batman, not... you say you don't kill anybody, but that seems to be quite a lot of residual radiation. <laughs> yeah, I don't I don't know that that was ever addressed because yeah, they do like plug the reactor into the Batmobile to charge it. Um but um apparently that flame coming out of the back is not harmful to anyone. <laughs> it's a good question. There's a, there's, I don't know the answer. There's a there's a Arkham Asylum uh, video game where you have a uh, a batarang uh, Gatling gun that you shoot at speed from the Batmobile, and you hit people in the face, but they don't die. <laughs> No, it, it's quite clear. Like you just like if, in that game, you're like, we've murdered literally hundreds. <laughs> we've made way to an entire city. But I, I don't know. There's, there's, there's. I don't know. I'm, I'm getting away from really the fun aspects of of, of the Batman '66 show. Um, but one of the the things uh, I'm curious about is if you'll ever explore, or if you've had a chance to explore the fact that they they've now done original tie-in comics for the show. Oh, the the Batman '66 comic series. And they're also doing crossovers with uh, kind of like the contemporary crossovers of the time with the Green Hornet comic books and even um, the 77 uh, Wonder Woman show. Yeah, we haven't yet, except uh, on Deconstructing Comics a couple years ago, we talked about um, the lost episode, the 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 Batman 66 uh, one-shot comic that was based on Harlan Ellison's treatment for uh, a Two-Face appearance that was never made. 
Um, it was only a treatment, and so then what? Len Wein wrote a script, uh, and they put that comic out. So we talked about that on deconstructing comics, but I mean, I'm sure eventually we're going to get to the '66 comic because and we've been talking about a lot of other things besides individual episodes lately. And once we get into season three, I think we're going to be doing that more um, and kind of, you know, breaking away from the series more, maybe like every other episode, do something else. Um, but, and, and I'm sure we're still going to have stuff to talk about after we we're all the way through the series. I'm, <laughs> I'm not quite sure how, how long we're going to be going on this, but we will keep going past uh, the final Batman episode. You think you'll get into um, uh, any of the like uh, cameo appearances that the the characters or the actors have done uh, post sixty uh, six? Because there's there's a certain aspect of uh, of um, of them where they seem to just like love playing themselves in uh, as <laughs> as their original roles in other media, really. Well, or or like in the case of certainly of Adam West and Burt Ward, you know, nobody wants them to do anything else. It's the only way they can make money. Um, so, and you know, it it pretty much killed Adam West's career for a few decades until it kind of became cool again. And so now he's doing Family Guy, and and uh, now he's what someone just recently said. Now he's considered a national treasure, which is pretty much true um but like in the 70s you know he couldn't get a job as a dog catcher because they only wanted him to be batman and they didn't want him to be batman anymore either so <laughs> I, wanted to, I wanted to show up really badly on like arrow on the cw as a as a cameo just like mm. uh just an old and uh an elderly uh millionaire in the area just happens to have a cave you know <laughs> that would be cool then the um yeah it's, it is interesting about the the tight casting i think if you were to compare those guys to to anybody it would probably be the the original series star trek folks because there's so much greater penetration of popular culture in that era so that even a show that only has a, a few season run is being seen by like 20 30 40 million people in syndicate and then in syndication thereafter all new generations of people and so it's it's just strange in the way that a lot of like that 60s pop culture didn't realize the effect that it was having kind of like the ripples that were were out there from from being on shows like that well yeah i mean th you know those shows you know dominated the syndication you know through the 70s and into the 80s and you know any any show that lasted you know long enough in production to have enough episodes to do uh, syndication, Star Trek and Batman and Gilligan's Island and you know a, a, a lot of a lot of others you could name. Um, those they became such a um, you know it became kind of the common uh, cultural currency. Everybody knows references to those shows pretty much. Maybe not millennials, I don't know, but uh, for a lot of us, you know. That's all. That's our common ground, you know. Beverly Hillbillies. Oh yeah, Beverly Hillbillies. Ha ha ha. You know. <laughs> and so yeah, those those actors in a lot of cases maybe had trouble moving on from that. But you know, Shatner did get T.J. Hooker, so um, he did get to do something where he wasn't uh, Kirk. But 
one of my favorite biographies at all is uh, is Beam Me Up, Scotty. James Duhan has a fantastic story, and so it kind of reminds me of of those guys and the way that they got tired. And George Takei kind of got a chance to reclaim his career later in the day too. And mm-hmm. so, um, but like I think another big parallel is maybe like uh, uh, is the fact that you had multiple takes on on. Uh, uh, multiple takes on Catwoman and Eartha Kitt had had quite an impact, I think, on TV and off TV, in terms of uh, being really outspoken uh, uh, civil rights campaigner. So I thought that was always an interesting legacy for the show. Mm, yeah, I think famously they have that story of her going to the um, uh, the Johnson White House, and I think I forgot she made Lady Bird Johnson cry. <laughs> <laughs> what did she do? She was essentially just saying, like, uh, I mean, she told the truth, and uh, it hurt, mm-hmm, is the best way to describe it. And uh, they blacklisted her for, for decades, like, just, like, not a welcome thing. Like, it's like, you made the first lady cry. What? Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, we're not hiring you. I mean, she she went through it. She never apologized. She didn't feel like she had anything to apologize for. And so that, that ended up. Later in the like the in the late eighties, she she made her return. She she's like, well, fine, I'll just go, I'll go over to France or I'll go over to these other people. It's like I speak six languages, I can sing and eight of, <laughs> might as well make money elsewhere. And she, so she yeah, I, I really admired that about her as a, as a character. I think her maybe her performance in that is uh, is for debate. Do you have? Uh, I, I, I don't remember, admittedly, because like I said, for me, it's it's a new experience because I hadn't experienced it in syndication. I experienced it mainly now with the DVDs, or when I when I had it in syndication, it was just so out of order. Like I think they had this idea like kids will only watch like certain episodes or something. Like they never seem to want to air those type of things in order. Hmm. I don't know. In in Iowa, I never had that experience. They always showed them in order, as far as I can remember. Um. Yeah, I, I because I mean every single one of the shows on the DVD I remember watching as a kid. I don't remember how. So forgive me for forgetting, Jog Member. How did they? How did they explain like two two Catwomen or things like that? Like, <laughs> or do I think do you have a you have one of your uh, episodes where is like a second a second Riddler appearance, which is fun a fun cameo. Right. I mean, I I don't think they ever tried to explain why the character looked different. It just just was di- was a different person, but it was the it same missed- character. They missed a neat trick. They could have pulled a Doctor Who, and then we would still have Batman 66 on the air. (laughs) Batman's regenerating. What? Oh, my, it's Val Kilmer. (laughs) Hmm. Well, yeah, that would be interesting. Um, Yeah, I mean, you know, there were three Catwomen, right? Because uh, Julie Newmar and Eartha Kitt, and then in the movie... um, Oh. oh, that's right. Yeah, that's my first experience with with Catwoman. Blanking on her name here. Let me. Oh, Lee Merriweather, right? Um, Lee Merriweather in the movie. Um, and yeah, yeah. I guess yeah. You say it's your that was your first experience. Yeah, because the movie I guess didn't have the legal issues holding it back from being released for home video. So. That had been out since I don't know. I guess there there must have been a VHS version of Batman the movie, but uh, yeah, there there never was of the show because there was such an argument over who had the rights to it. Since you know Warner brought bought DC, so it was a Warner character, but the TV show was produced by Fox. Um, 
and you know, thus it was held back until 2014 when they finally worked it out. It's amazing to me the the fact that like DC has never had the issue cinematically that Marvel has in terms of having its properties syndicated or bought by other companies. Like it's solved to a certain extent when Disney acquires them in terms of okay, we've got in-house money, we can do this, but like. Warner Brothers has never really had that issue, except, I mean, they do license their characters, but, like, Warner Brothers DC have been together since the 60s, so, <laughs> or 70s, so it's like, what in the, I don't know why they, they have all these different agreements or different network properties, when it's like, you have a television network, why aren't all of your shows on your television network? <laughs> it's like, they've got, here's Constantine on NBC, here's Powerless at NBC, here's this on, uh, here's Gotham on Fox, here's... God knows how many shows on, on the CW. Here's something on TNT. We're shipping a pilot for TNT. Why? <laughs> <laughs> have... And they do such a good job now that they're all on the, the same. World the same... domination is the, their, their goal. <laughs> they, had, they had one executive who was quoted as saying, like, essentially, like, pulling a spot quote, like, infinite diversity and infinite combinations. We need a lot of money streams. <laughs> But also, yeah. then they're hesitant to like give you the big toys to play with. So you're like, no, you you can't have Batman in this because we have little Batman over here, and so he's busy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I I digress. But like, are you surprised? I mean, having that be the introduction to you for for like comic books as as a kid, or wanting to these comic book characters, are you surprised that they've had? I mean, for decades there wasn't really. An attempt. I mentioned like Wonder Woman in the seventies, or like Shazam, Superboy in the eighties, Flash in the eighties, early nineties. So I mean, there there's certainly like contemporaneous attempts. Like there's a timeline of these, really with DC t- properties more than certainly with Marvel properties. But are you surprised to see the explosion of comic book uh, TV and film that that we've had uh, more more recently? Well, not really, because um, it's only now that. That the technology has been up to, you know, showing people with powers. I mean, if you, I don't know if you ever saw like the '70s Spider-Man TV show. Um, oh yes. <laughs> it, <laughs> I mean, you know, they they couldn't really do Spider-Man yet in terms of the technology, um, and so he was always just, you know, fighting mobsters. You know, because, you know, they, Green Goblin, Doc Ock, no, they're not going to be able to do that in the 70s in any way that would look decent. So, but now they can do all that stuff. Uh, so I don't know. There's there's a really convincing fight with a bear in that in that uh, particular series. That that <laughs> uh, that is, I mean, tremendous. I haven't seen anything that hardcore since The Revenant. Hmm. In, in the spite in the Spidey series from the 70s. Oh, that my sarcasm did not translate over Skype. I'm sorry. Okay. <laughs> no, that was a, that was a very unsuccessful bear fight. Although there's something really, really fun about watching it these days. <laughs> I don't remember that. I I've yeah. The fight is the guy that. in an obvious bear costume that I think they later recycle on the Incredible Hulk, so that the Hulk can throw a guy in a bear costume. <laughs> yeah, they did kind of pull off pull off the Hulk. Uh, in the late seventies, early eighties, but again, he was not fighting anyone with superpowers. Um, but yeah, I, it doesn't really surprise me uh, that it's happening now. Um, so I don't know if the technology been up to it. Maybe we would have gotten all this in the seventies and eighties. But 
I think I think one of the things I I can't believe I haven't asked yet is like for recommendations. I brought up a couple of times that your podcast is a really good place to find them, but what what are you currently reading outside of a preparation for uh, for interviews or for critiques on the podcast? Like, what's grabbing your interest in in contemporary comics? Ooh, well, yeah, I uh, I buy some stuff and then it sits there for a few months before I get to it. But I'm I just been uh, besides the stuff that I'm reading for the show, I've just been been. Uh, reading a few Marvel tile titles. Well, you know, I, I always read Spider-Man. That's kind of the baseline. You just always read Spider-Man. Um, even if, even in the eras when it's crap, just keep reading Spider-Man and hope it'll get better. It's, it's okay right now. Um, but, uh, yeah, there were some, there have been some pretty bad years. Um, and I've been reading Daredevil, which is pretty good. The Charles soul, uh, take on it um and dr strange because i i really like uh, chris bachalo's art although he hasn't always been on it lately but most of the time he is um but yeah i that's like i said i buy stuff and it sits there for a while i bought a few other things that i'd like to read and <laughs> i'll get to them pretty soon um and let's see what else. Um, Chew, well, Chew's finished, but that was really good. And that was. I've got, yeah, I'm staring at the um, the collected edition. I can't remember what they called that, like the uh, omnivore edition. Uh, I think it's called with the <laughs> like first thirty. I want to say the first thirty chapter, first thirty chapters. <laughs> it's so big and it's really great. I, I this, that was a really fun book. So I. I I'd made a joke about about Poyo in the last episode, so I hope you know you're falling uh, uh, falling right, up on. That was on, a really fun one on my show, yeah, I, yeah. And I, I think it's that that's almost an underrated thing. I'm glad that they were like 60 issues and we're done, and they had that plan from the first start. 60 issues sounds pretty ambitious when you're just getting started, mm -hmm. but by like 30, you're like, are you sure you're gonna end it at 60? Like, <laughs> are you sure? Um, have you been reading uh, Brian Lee O'Malley's Snot Girl? No, I've forgotten about that. Yeah, that's a that's a really good recommendation. They had, um, the last thing I read for him was Seconds. Yeah, I'm I I don't know. I haven't read it lately. Maybe just because I've I don't know if it's been coming out. I'm so far behind. Um, but yeah, I'm I've read like five issues and I'm still kind of hmm, what what is this about? What is the what is the goal here? Um yeah, so I'm I'm kind of undecided on that series yet, but I, I usually like uh, O'Malley stuff. So the, the last thing I read from him, he did, and I thought that would be a direction that he might continue going was doing those, just kind of like hardcover single single story story compilation things. Like Seconds was really good. I thought the with the mm -hmm. uh, the time travel element, it kind of reminded me of a of a of a book and a manga in Japan. The girl who looked through time, just in like the what it, what would you, except like a little bit more serious. She's preventing people from like getting scalded to death in a restaurant <laughs> and things like that. <laughs> but the but like the concept's the same. She's not like using time travel for world domination or to become imminently rich or anything. She's just using it for practical things in her life. Hmm. Yeah, uh, yeah, I liked Seconds. That was good. Um... And uh, yeah, we talked about it on the show at some point, shortly after it came out. Uh, 
Oh, there are a couple of interviews I wish I had that uh, particular recipe I could throw back real quick. Not this one. Don't don't get that impression. <laughs> <laughs> we have one. With, we have one that lives in infamy where um, the person was just giving monosyllabic responses and then insults. And then he's like, that, I thought that went rather well, didn't you? It's like, yeah, yeah, that was that was great. That was something. Hmm. Yeah. So, um, yeah, and actually tonight, um, kind of getting back to Batman. Um, oh, yes, Batman. <laughs> Sorry about that. I took uh, us down a dark corner. <laughs> um, so we, we've arrived at the Green Hornet crossover. Um, but we decided, um, or kind of, I decided cause I kind of, I tend to set the direction here. Um, but before we talk about that, we're going to do an episode, uh, we're recording tonight. It'll be out on May 18th, um, about the Green Hornet TV show. Um, and so we have, we have a guest who is one of our listeners, uh, who, knows more about the Green Hornet than we do, which isn't very difficult. Um, so so uh, the three of us are going to record a discussion about that. Um, and have you seen the Green Hornet TV show? Yeah, I've seen, I've probably, I've probably seen about as much of that as I have for, for Batman 66, because they, they got that into syndication on like the sci-fi channel here in, in the States. And they, they kind of got a second wave of popularity just because I think the popular culture really associates that so much with Bruce Lee. And there's, there's still yeah. like a really, really hard fan base for, for that. Yeah. Um, Cause like in the seventies, it was never on because there are only 26 episodes and it was considered not enough for, you know, five day a week syndication. But yeah, with all these cable channels, maybe they would only show it once a week or something, or or alternate it with other shows. I don't know. But yeah, I, the the versions that are on YouTube because there's no official DVD release. Um, the ones on YouTube were all recorded from what stars, I think. Um, so yeah, I had. I mean, of course, I saw the the Batman crossover in the '70s, but I had never seen the show itself until just recently that one i think had even as much i mean overseas had a much bigger impact maybe even than batman did which is the the surprise like obviously launching bruce lee as like an international figure i, I was listening to another podcast about arms control of all things recently hmm. and it was so influential to the point that the um taiwan had a had an intercontinental ballistic missile program in the 70s hmm. and uh, they had named their their ballistic missile prototypes after the name of the green hornet show in chinese <laughs> they're like yeah this is that's like that's how popular it was is like the 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 nerds working on their their missile program were just like this is our favorite show so we're gonna name this weapon of mass destruction after bruce lee because it's the kato show <laughs> right yeah they called it the kato show in in chinese-speaking areas as i understand yeah. because why not and that's you know they know which side their bread's buttered on so van williams who but yeah <laughs> bruce lee yes you, I mean, you joke, but you just said Van Williams, and I'm like, I'm assuming that's the person who played the Green Hornet. Right, yeah, I mean, he never <laughs> became as big a star as Bruce Lee did. Um, <laughs> um, and I, I saw the other night, I think it was on Wikipedia, like in the early 80s, he quit acting and went into law enforcement. That is hilarious, like he, that's like art, art imitating life on that one. 
Yeah, right. And I think he just died like last year. Wow. No, I have to. I'll have to look that up. It sounds like he had a really fascinating life outside of. Um, that's often the case for for a lot of Hollywood people that they have an interesting life outside of the uh, silver screen. And I have to say, in terms of him as the Green Hornet, I like the casting. Um, I I really I really feel like he he fits into that role well, though I can't quite put my finger on why. I I believe he's a multimillionaire uh, publishing tycoon. <laughs> I don't know. There, it's definitely a more mild mannered uh, character. It's almost like they were combining different comic book tropes when they when they put him together, like different iterations of characters. Like, hey, Superman works for uh, for a newspaper, doesn't he? Yeah, yeah. Hey, Batman's a billionaire, right? Yeah, yeah, or millionaire. <laughs> we, we can't conceive of the concept of billions of dollars. It's the nineteen sixties. Good lord. But the uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's yeah, put them together. He's, he's the, a publisher. Yeah, or the thirties when uh, the yeah. Green Hornet radio show was invented yeah and that's it's interesting because there aren't really many superhero type characters at least none that have lasted that were conceived for radio most of them got started in comics or possibly other media but yeah radio (laughs) not many that started there I can I can honestly confess to never hearing any of the the radio dramas for the Green Hornet. That's mm. interesting. They're on archive.org. I've listened to a couple of them. <laughs> That's fascinating. I know, I mean, there's there's definitely that that concurrence with I think pulp heroes really transforming into or paving the way for the um the resurgence of of superheroes. So things like The Shadow or maybe the old Legend of Zorro radio plays or mm. gosh, The Phantom, absolutely. Oh yeah. That's interesting. There's there's a lot of people who pick up those those properties and and run with them because they have their own. They're one that they published under. I'm forgetting the King. Is it King Comics? They they do have a publisher. They those so those are all. I love that all of the things we're talking about have comics contemporaneously despite their age. <laughs> right. Yeah. The, you're talking about the Phantom, the the guy in the purple bodysuit. Yeah, you're right. I don't think the shadow has a comic. You're right. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, I, don't, I like... can't. I I couldn't tell you what the shadow looks like. No. Um. I I mean, I've heard the. I think I've heard the radio show before a long time ago. But uh, yeah, I have no idea what he looks like. I think if you know what he looks like, you're dead. I think that's the whole point of the plot. <laughs> and... <laughs> yeah, possibly. Um. But yeah, the the hornet's interesting. You know, because uh they they played it pretty serious. Um, and I guess ABC wasn't really expecting that. You know, they thought it would be another Batman. Um, but I think I, the Hornet is just as interesting. I think in terms of the style of it, um, you know, even though there's, there's so much like, you know, every episode they use the same stock footage of the, the black beauty coming out of the garage, <laughs> driving down the street at night. Um, but you know, the, the music is really cool. You know, sometimes I listen, you know, I'm watching the show and I just kind of start grooving to the music, <laughs> uh, Billy Mays, uh, score for it. There's that, I mean, that's just a fun, timeless quality to it too. And, and mm-hmm. or I shouldn't say even timeless, it's of its time. And that's well, what yeah, makes I think it that makes it better. I mean, pe- maybe people wouldn't have appreciated as much at would not have appreciated as much at the time as now, or it feels kind of cool and retro. 
there's there's a there's a lot about that in long running shows too like in Doctor Who they there's actually a scene that they have to cut from uh from early DVDs that features the Beatles on a uh, on a screen in the TARDIS and a couple of the the young female companions dancing to them and then another one from the future is just like oh doctor I didn't know you had classical music in the TARDIS <laughs> It's just like it's fun. It's fun to be reminded of like the era that that shows are that shows are coming from. Yeah. <laughs> Doctor Who started in the sixties. Yeah, nineteen sixty-three. Wow. Okay. Because I think I wasn't aware of it until like the early eighties, maybe. But when I was a teenager, there's there's a certain like, uh, I guess like I'll use it the the there's a certain like. Uh, Oh gosh, what are they called? I almost called it uh, the wrong thing. Uh, for whatever reason, I have the word tonkatsu stuck in my my. Uh, tonkatsu. My head. Oh, now I'm make, now I'm getting hungry. I, that was the problem. I think I'm just hungry. That's not at all what I was trying to think of. It's the oh, it's the manga creator that I, I mentioned that I like the Shitaro Ishinomori because that's what I'm thinking of. Because like if I think of anything that's similar in the '60s or '70s to to, to Green Hornet, it's got to be Common Rider. And shoot, there's a there's a huh. phrase for for the giant robot beat 'em up <laughs> in foam foam monster costumes that has a tokusatsu. That's the that's the phrase I'm looking for. Okay, okay. I think they all have that vibe. I would I would throw Batman sixty six even in that like because even though that's before that really, it's just like it just has that it has that just fun fun afternoon TV special vibe to it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So so yeah, we're looking forward to talking some Green Hornet here before we move on with Batman. I I apologize. I've mentioned Kroger and Tonkatsu. I think I'm dinner. This is this interview is happening dinner time, my time. <laughs> okay, well it's almost lunchtime here, so yeah. yeah. <laughs> I will probably let you get to that, but I just I, again I'm really grateful, and so they can look forward to hearing by well they will already have heard by the magic of time travel Doctor Who reference again. Uh, the they will have already heard the the Green Hornet uh, episodes on on your podcast. Where are you where are you heading after that? Yeah, so um, right, so our our talk about the Green Hornet series comes out on May 18th. Um, it's to the batpoles.libsyn.com or of course on iTunes or wherever. Um, and Deconstructing Comics comes out every Monday. Um, that's also on iTunes and whatever, and deconstructingcomics.com. And Critiquing Comics is there in the same feed. And so, uh, I, like I said, I alternate on Thursdays. Uh, to the Bat Polls is first, third, and fifth Thursdays of the month, and Critiquing Comics is second and fourth Thursdays. Um, and then if any, if there are any Japanese listeners out there who want to study English with a podcast, uh, Machigai podcast is at machigai.com. Is that, uh, is that podcast helpful, uh, if I want to reverse engineer it and perhaps learn Japanese? <laughs> um, you could probably do that to some extent. Yeah. Cause, um, like, you know, example sentences in both languages or something. Yeah. It's possible. Yeah, yeah. So hopefully we can get a few, a few English, send a few English listeners your way for that as well. Uh, I think that will uh, at least uh, clear up more than than my helpful language lesson of of make you hungry and then think about punching giant robots. <laughs> right. 
No, I mean, again, we've been been really happy to to have you, and so they can find your podcast, Deconstructing Comics, Machine Guy Podcast, and the To the Bat Pole Podcast, which, of course, I love the fact that it's said very dramatically. <laughs> there is an exclamation park mark in there somewhere. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes, there is. And so they're available on iTunes. Uh, are you are you also on Stitcher or all the other friendly podcasters out there? Yep. Mm-hmm. So uh, you can also find us at Kind of Epic Show on, uh, well, presumably you've already found us, I hope. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they wouldn't be listening to this otherwise. temporal experience, yes. But, of course, we are we are also uh, on the uh, the Twitter machine. You can find us at Kind of Epic Show on Twitter. Uh, where can they find uh, find you on social media? Um, at Decon Comics on Twitter. Um, and on Facebook, for reasons I still not quite sure why I'm doing it this way, but we have both a page and a group. Um, and the page, you know, is, I guess, good if you just kind of want to want a reminder of when the podcast goes up. Um, and I put to the bat polls on there, too, because I, I don't, don't have time to do a separate social media presence for that. Um, and then uh, on the group, you know, you have to send me a request to join it and I'll add you, but uh, there's more discussion there. There are a number of people who will throw up comic stuff there when they run across it or, you know, try to start a discussion or something. So um, if you, if you want to be a little more involved, then you can join the group. That sounds awesome. Thank you for, for letting me join, by the way. You gave me the, the code to the, the Batcave and everything. <laughs> sure, no problem. Oh, and thanks for supporting us on Patreon, too. No, no, it's really fun. I, it's something I hope that we're going to launch soon. Uh, I joked on, on your podcast about uh, that being one of the secrets to uh, to, to not, is or, or things not to do is uh, you should probably embrace good technology like Patreon. That's a way for people to not only feel like a good connection uh, in terms of supporting the the show that they like, but also it's a, it's a great avenue to to get feedback and and stuff. It's not it's not the don't market via Patreon <laughs> or Kickstarter. That is not their purpose. But it is such a great a great way to to interact with your fans and let and let you know that that people actually appreciate what it is that you're doing. So. Yeah. We're very happy to to do that and 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 give you a shout out there and um, just yeah very grateful for your time again today so thanks again to Tim Young yeah. and uh, we'll let you get out there and deconstruct some more comics okay great thanks all right bye all right take care. Hey listeners, this is Micus, creator of the kind of epic theme song, Zombie Kids. If you're interested in finding out more about my music, you can check me out at micusmusic.com. Also, I am on iTunes, Facebook, and SoundCloud. You can look me up as Micus Music, and that's M-I-K-U-S, and you know the rest. Alright, peace out everyone. Keep listening.